Good morning. The reading, the reading today is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. And if it, you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 178. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children, Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's see if this is working. Is this good? All right. Okay. Well, let's take a look together then at this, this passage uh, um, a little bit more deeply uh, together. I've been reading through a book, uh, second, second time through, called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Maybe the first time was about 10 years ago. And our, our small group of men, so what we call triads, kind of our approach to discipleship, has been working through this book together. And there's a concept that we've just come across that's toward, towards the end of the book that I've really, uh, I remember holding on to quite a bit about a decade ago. And every now and then I think of it again. It's always good to be refreshed on things that you've learned in, in the past. And, and so we just got to that chapter and I said, man, that is a great uh, way of describing looking at life for me personally, where I happen to be, uh, as well as where the people of Israel are as we go through the Bible. We're reading chronologically, and we've made it to Deuteronomy, and they're still in the desert. They haven't quite gotten to the promised land, but in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses now is right at the cusp. They can look across the Jordan River and see it, and these are his words to the next generation, describing everything that he's learned and looking back on kind of where they've come from and giving some definition, not only to where they are, but how they're supposed to look ahead at where they're going as well. And the concept in this book puts it in terms of story and no story. It's about prayer. And sometimes you feel like your prayers are not being answered. How do you look at that? You can grow disillusioned and, and, and frustrated and feel like God really isn't at work at all. So if, if we had, well, we do have PowerPoint up there. Look at that. That is pretty remarkable. 
We'll see what happens here too. But if you can, I don't even have the clicker uh, up here. But if, if you were to imagine it, maybe we'll see it in a moment as well. So go on. Um, it's kind of like reminds me of the, okay, there we go. I was going to say the Wizard of Oz. There's, there's nobody behind the curtain. Yeah, don't look. That's fine. So on the, on the one hand, it, 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 just what I'm trying to say is imagine this. What if, if your life just isn't making sense? It could be that you don't believe there's anything, any purpose to it. So you're kind of living in what you would call there's no story. There's no purpose. There's no direction uh, at all. That's one way to live life. And in fact, it seems to be describing the way that Israel was wandering in the desert. If you're living in that space, then you tend to be bitter about things. It's interesting because bitter is actually what we looked at last week in the book of Numbers. The water of, you know, the waters were bitter in several places too. Or angry about how things are going. Or cynical. Or aimless. Or controlling. Or hopeless, or thankless, or blaming. Those are all ways to, to, to go through life and look at things. However, if you believe there is a story being told, you can live on that side of the column. And there's kind of opposites here. Instead of being bitter, for example, you can be waiting. You know, when events happen, they don't seem to make sense. You can get bitter about them. Or you can just be waiting and saying, God must be up to something. I don't know what it is. So you're wondering about all this as well. You, a heart that believes that there's a story being told is a praying heart. You can be submitting to what God is doing. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bitter or wait versus uh, waiting. Angry versus watching. Aimless versus wondering. Cynical. Versus praying, controlling versus submitting. I, I, it's amazing to me how controlling I am as a person. I would have said, especially between church, before I started you know, doing this church planting thing, I was a very non-controlling person. And yet this has brought out something in my heart I've never seen before. Like, I am so controlling. I have a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> and for this church. And it just hasn't gone according to plan. And that's a controlling issue. But if, I, if I'm living in the sense of story, I can submit to God. He's doing things I don't get. It's not going according to my plan. Do I believe his plan is actually better? Even if I can't see it. If you're living in kind of that story side, you can say, I, I, you can be honest. I don't get it. I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. But I'm wondering what God's doing. I'm submitting to what he's got going on. Instead of just saying, forget about it. It's all hopeless. You can be hoping. And I could be thanking God instead of thankless. It's one of the things we talked about last week. That, you know, these people spent all their time looking at what God hadn't given them when there were all these things that he had given them in front of them. There's always going to be more things you can complain about. But if you're living on the story side, you're looking for where has God provided? Or blaming versus repenting. And these are two responses to things. When things go wrong or, or something bad happens, you can look for who to blame. Or you can say, God, what do I need to repent of? How are you stripping me of my self-reliance? Or where am I misplacing my trust along the way? You see that, don't you? Two ways to live life. You can choose to be on that no-story side and 
gosh, you know, a lot of people live there, and sometimes my heart wanders there too. But God is pushing us over to the story side, and he's been doing that to the Israelites in the desert. But because they're stiff-necked and stubborn, they choose no story all the way up until the end. And now Moses is saying, look, we're finally at this place. We're crossing into the over the Jericho, into, in, into the promised land, across the Jordan River. Which way are you going to choose? Because guess what? For the past 40 years, we've been living on that left side. And there's only two people going to cross over, Joshua and Caleb, because of their faithfulness. But he's giving the next generation a warning. These are his parting shots. That's why I said one title for this could be, you know, parting shots from a wise old guy. He's saying, you better learn because you're going to go over to this new land and all the distractions are going to be there as well. Even though it's a land flowing with milk and honey, you can, you can forget all that you've learned and you're going to slip over into the no, no story side. So listen up. If you're wise, if you want to listen, Moses is saying, this is my parting shot. Live on that story side. These are instructions about how to live, essentially, on the right side. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is, the second giving of the law. The next generation, he's speaking to them, collective wisdom. How to avoid the mistakes of the past and to live in what we would call story, to give it that language, and to live well going forward. Now, this is a very important set of verses because it's known as the Shema. Here is the Shema. This is something that a faithful Israelite would hang on to. Here... O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That would be the Shema. And so the basis for walking forward in this story, according to Moses, kind of the heart of this, is the love and obedience that comes from the very character of God. That's, if you're going to live well, it involves love, and love looks like obedience at times. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to separate those two things in God's economy. But the basis for you, to, the foundation for you doing that is the very character of God. That's what we see here in these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's certainly a monotheistic statement in a culture where there were many, many gods. He said, this is the one. I am the one exclusive God. That's a stumbling block to many people as well to say that there's only one God and he's been revealed to us here. But it also reflects the reality that God is one in purpose. There is no mixture or conflict in him. He does not lie. He can't. He fulfills his promises. He's doing that in space and time as we go through the Bible here. He's consistent. He is not divided. He has a singular objective. And that's not just theoretical. It's very, very practical as well. And one of the ways that's worked out is in his people being committed to him reflexively in the same way. So he says, look, I, I'm singular in purpose in my devotion to you. And I've, I've called you. He says, from that reality, I called you out of Egypt, out of bondage, and I put my love on you. Now, reflexively, you do the same with me. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. And what's the first? You shall have no other gods before me. That's your singular purpose, to, to see everything as through the lens of God, 
being the, the, the prime reality that informs everything else that I do. Like, like a spoke, you know, of a, a wheel. He is the center, and it informs everything. The way you look at family, the way you look at money, the way you look at values. It's all through the grid of God being at the center. And if you remember, we mentioned that the very way that they uh, built the, the camp when they were wandering through the desert was so that God was either at the center when they pitched their tents or at the front and they were following him. That's a physical reality that spills over into everything. How do you treat people? No matter who they are. You do that through the lens of there is one God and he has set his love on us. And so reflexively, we do the same to others around us. When Jesus summed up the entire Bible, it's a long book, right? We're going to take a whole year to get through, through it. Jesus does it in just one verse. Love God and love others. That's the entire thing. This, the, the, the rest is details, right? And the details are important. And oftentimes we get them wrong. But it's drawing us back to the character of God. He loved us first. Well, we can love him. And that is how we demonstrate that love. That first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Exclusively. Wholeheartedly. Isn't it interesting that Caleb... And Joshua are the only who will go over that older generation. And you know what, how they're described repeatedly? Wholehearted devotion. That was their stance for God. I'm going to make him the, the, the primary reality so that when I go across the land and see giants, I don't see giants. I see God fulfilling his promises in ways that we couldn't predict. That's what they see. That's the grid for looking at all of this stuff. So I think it has really practical realities. When David prays, for example, in Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. This is what he's talking about. Not a heart that's committed to this, a little bit, a little bit to God, and then wholly committed. And that informs and instructs absolutely everything that I do. So this Shema is not just about a statement about God's character, but how his character informs and instructs how we live our lives as well. That's the basis and the foundation for it. And Moses knows this is the heart of all the commandments because it will guide them in the right direction and keep them distinctive and thriving and growing. And specifically in this passage, he tells them there, there are some things that you need to remember to keep God central as you go forward, uh, as, uh, working out this this command. And the first, first one he says this in, in verse 1 and really spilling over to verse 2 is you need to remember. Remember this is to the next generation. Now listen up. You're about to cross over. Here's some things you need to keep in mind. Remember what God has commanded and remember what God has taught. These are the commands, the creeds, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And he Spills that out even more in verse 2 there. And the first part of Deuteronomy, if you've been reading through us, does a lot of recalling. It reflects on what God has done in the past. Looking back on it, it's the history of how they got there. And they need to do that because if they don't remember it, they're going to repeat it, right? Which is always the case with history. So in the Bible, there's a lot of remembering. Remember, remember, look back. Now, last week we said, remember God's provisions. Look back at his provisions. And that's a, a piece of this. This is bigger. Remember everything that God has commanded, but also what he has taught. The lessons that you've learned. 
Remember 9-11, right? I mean, you, now, the, the longer we are away from that event, it's, that, that event is pretty big in my memory. I remember where I was. I remember the feeling I had. You know, Jill was off in uh, Utah visiting my, my parents. We were separated. And there's that sense of uneasiness, like what's going to happen next and where is this gonna, going to go on next? And here's the thing. None of my, none of my children remember that event. I mean, I can, I can, we can see, you can see specials and you can, you know, we, we say, you, you know what? Uh, going to the airport is very different than it was. You know, after 9-11, it was before 9-11, things were different. But they're like, yeah, you're just an old guy. Because <laughs> it's not their reality. So we can see things and say, I remember that. But they're, they're not living in that space, are they? They, they, have, different, they have different memories. It, it doesn't, it doesn't say, but we still need to remember. But we, don't we easily forget then? I mean, just give it a couple decades and you forget so the Bible does a lot of this thing of looking back, and we have to continue to talk about it. But God's also putting new storylines, if you're living the story, new memories, fresh histories. So we, we, we need both. And part of what we do then, as a nation even, is say, don't forget that, remember. But it's easy to forget. And one of the reasons they do the, the Passover celebration is because they're going through the motions, and the kids ask, hey, why do we do this? Because it was bitter. When we, because we had no time, and, and they're listening, and they may not, may not fully get it, but they're starting to identify that that is a part of their story as well. It's real for them. And the Bible calls us all the time, remember, remember, remember. That's part of why we gather each week, because we need to remember. We easily forget the lessons that we've taught. It's so easy to forget the lessons learned. Look, look for example, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just flip a couple pages over if you have that. Just to give you an example of how important memory is. Look at verse, uh, verse starting in verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Wow, there's, there's something to remember about what you've been taught. He says, you've been wandering for 40 years. Why did God do this? Well, he's really getting to your heart. He wants to see what's happening on the inside in the midst of this desert experience. And he, so remember, don't forget the humility that you learned. He goes on to say, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you the man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If God is not in the foreground, you're going to be looking at that and saying, why are you starving us? But he's learning that they're supposed to be learning that God provides the basic needs that you have. We see that verse later, don't we? In the Bible, when Jesus is tempted in the desert, he quotes this. And he says, look, my grid for looking through life is to do the will of the Father. That's my bread. Not to get what I want. And he's learned that. These people learned that. He's looking back at history as well. I mean, it's amazing when you look, keep going forward. Your clothes, I mean, this is miraculous in, in verse 4. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. And once again, if you're only thinking about what you don't have, there's reasons to complain. But God says, your clothes stayed, I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's a quite, a, quite a verse right there. Feed not swell and clothes 
Staying in good shape. Know then in your heart, verse 5, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Moses is telling the next generation, look, God's after your heart, and there may be times when he humbles you, but don't forget those lessons. Don't do it. Don't become proud and stiff-necked again. You, you, there's too much at risk. In fact, look, look down below in verse 10. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I give you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and you can go out and you can choose whatever place you want to go eat, you know, and you've got all kinds of excess funds or whatever, you start getting kind of comfortable when you build fine houses and settle down and everything's in order, when your herds and flocks grow large, your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied. Because at that point, then we say, look at what great things God has given me. Everything I have is from him. Right? Well, in verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you'll, you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Talk about practical application. Look at verse 17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms this covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. You got lots of money? Great. Rejoice. Be generous. But don't be proud. One, one diagnosis from a doctor. It could all be gone. One car accident, gone. One scandal, gone. Everything you have comes from God. And here's the problem. When you live in a land of plenty, flowing with milk and honey and skyline chili, it's easy to think, eh, I worked hard. I deserved it. And it's true. It's not to, it's not to minimize the effort you've put into it. But the only reason you can do that is by God's good grace. Period. And we tend to forget that. And you think, well, you know, when I go through a desert time, I'll learn it. They didn't for 40 years. Don't be thick-headed. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be hard-hearted. And part of what you do is you remember, right? He's saying, remember these things. Don't forget them because you're, you're in danger of forgetting. If you want to cross the, into this promised land, you better make sure you don't forget. And you remember the commands that God has given and how he's directed you, and how he's guided you to this point. But part of remembering really goes on to this next piece, because it's not just remembering, it's living out what he's commanded and he's taught. And the two kind of go together in Hebrew culture. You haven't really remembered until you've done so. Like, remembering's the beginning, like, huh. But it's brought to completion by actually doing it. It's like what James says, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. You do have to listen to it. But you haven't actually completed it until you do it. The, the, the blessing comes in the actual doing of these things. So you can remember it and like, oh yeah, it was good for my parents, but eh, not so much for me. You haven't fully remembered and you're certainly not living it out. So you won't know some of the fullness that comes from doing it because these aren't just arbitrary laws to say, you will obey me, human. They're laws that are given because He's a God who created you and knows how you function and flourish. He says, this is how you're designed. Live within the scope of these things. His presumption is you're going to flourish. It's just how things work because I know you. I made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know everything about you. So this is, this is the life that I've designed. 
And we know there are things that pull us away from that, but here, here's what it says right there. It's good things that are coming as a result of this. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey them so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Now this language is of language of growth, even back in verse 2, he, he talks about enjoying long life. And long life uh, maybe has a little bit of, you know, quantity in mind, but probably more in the Hebrew mindset, quality. You can live a really long life and be miserable. I mean, by days. But God says there's something, even a short life lived well is a rich, long life, as it were. And this is how you do it. That's the presumption that Moses is making. Live out what's been commanded and you'll experience the fullness because the other pathway just leads to misery. And at the end of Deuteronomy, he starts talking about blessings and curses. You know, do this and you'll be blessed. You know, to talk, have a long conversation about what that means. But at the end of the day, it's something good. Even if it's hard, it's good. Because your heart's not getting attached to the things of this world. And so you're, you think like, well, I'm obeying all God's laws and I'm having, you know, nothing good is happening in my life. And that's one perspective, no story. But I think the rich goodness life is like, there's, I don't understand it, but God's doing something in my heart. He's doing something around me. And it's a completely different perspective. Even if you're, by the world standards, miserable, you can be filled with joy, knowing that God is at work. And he's telling a story. I mean, that's it. It's, so this is what Moses seems to be getting at. We've tried this for 40 years. It doesn't work. And God told us it wouldn't. Walking this way, there's going to be some fullness. There's going to be a blessing. And you can't you know, quantify it specifically, but it's, it's true. You're going to have a long, full, rich, meaningful, deep life. Obey so that it may go well. You may increase this land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, that land flowing with milk and honey, if you're not living in this kind of way, it's going to taste bitter. It's not milk and honey anymore. This is about walking according to what God has revealed. The blessing is in the doing. Life comes through living out, walking in God's ways. And obedience in the Bible is connected with life and beauty. It just always is. Disobedience, brokenness, sorrow, pain, heartache, confusion, a divided heart. This is what Moses is saying. Hey, look, it's his words, not mine. This is an old wise guy. With his parting shots. This guy who talked face to face with God. That's how Deuteronomy ends. There's no one like him talking face to face. He's got some good stuff to say. It's just a matter of us being willing to listen. You know, there's different ways to uh, do apologetics. Um, which is just a, an apologetic is a defense of anything. You can have, a, have an apologetic for anything you want to. Uh, and then you gather evidence and defend it. If somebody says something against it, you say, no, I'm going to give a defense for it. So that's true for any faith system as well. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you can have an apologetic. I mean, our apologetic, of course, is how do you live, right? You can say you believe certain things, but if you don't live that way, guess what? You're offering a terrible apologetic for being a follower of Jesus, and that's a problem because in the New Testament especially, Jesus had the biggest issue with people who said 
that they believed in God and said, yes, we can say the Shema, but they didn't live it out. They, were, they, they treated people terribly. They didn't understand what it meant to, to, to love others very well, and they certainly didn't love God. Now, they showed on the outside like they did. Here's my money in the offering plate. Oh, hey, did you see how much I gave? But God knows their heart. And this is what God is always after, even here in this passage. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. This isn't just about external conformity. This is about internal, internalizing what is true. So that these laws, it's like the longest psalm in the Bible. You know, Psalm 119 just talks about loving God's laws. Not because he has to, but because they're the pathway of life. That's something happening internally. And this is where it's really challenging because especially if you feel like I'm beginning to grasp that and I want somebody else to know it, but they're not evidencing it, it's hard to get to the heart. Only God can get there. But you still need to provide that. And so what he, what he ends up with is saying, this is what it looks like in your community. You've got to not only do these things that we've already talked about, live out what he's commanded and taught you, but pass on what God has commanded and taught. So you remember, you live it out, and you pass it on. And these next verses is a bunch of conversation here about what you do with this stuff. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And three words that come to mind when I think about this are Holistic, intentional, and organic. When I say holistic, I mean this is a vision for life that's bigger than just a Sunday morning. Or, 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 or it, 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 inform, it, it speaks to everything. I mean, look at that language. When you sit at home, okay, when you walk along the road, lie down, get up, doesn't matter what time of day, doesn't matter what location. It's everywhere. These things, so... One of the problems, I think, in it's sometimes you grow up in a church is you tend to think that, you know, this is church and then I go live the rest of my life. This vision here is not like that at all. It informs everything. There's no piece of this that doesn't inform how you think or behave. It's holistic. It covers it all. And, and that's, that's true for, for not just doctrine and thinking things, but even the way that we, we pursue something like justice. I mean, it, it informs everything, how we look at it, not just limited scope, but holistic. It's a beautiful vision for life. It's full and rich. There's nothing it doesn't touch. Not only that, it's, if you've probably noticed, intentional. It's not like it just happens by mistake. So there are people who are, what are they doing? And they're talking about it. You see an opportunity, obviously, that's the organic part, but Here's, I got ahead of myself. Intentional. What do you do? Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames. That's intentionality. I mean, you're thinking about, we're not just going to kind of let this happen. What are we doing to make sure we're passing this on? I mean, intentionally pursuing these things. Give it some thought. Talk with somebody else. Read some books. Don't know what you're doing. And we, I didn't grow up in a context where this was passed on in this kind of way. So I need to learn from others. And I ask and I, I pursue that. But it is organic as well. It's not just 
Here's your plan and your program. Enter input, get output. <laughs> I mean, it's not like that. It's, there's something organic. See, you, you leverage every opportunity you have. Yes, you're intentional, but then when something comes up, you do the best you can. Some people are better at this than others. You might be good at being intentional. Here's the program. I'm going to follow it. You might be better at organic. I've got no plan whatsoever. <laughs> but I do know that I'm going to use every opportunity. That's great. They, you know, you, you do the best to tie them all together. The Bible does this too. Hey, son, in Proverbs, look at that ant. That ant's pretty strong, and it's extremely industrious. Gosh, that has application to how you're going to live your life as well. You're going to apply yourself like that ant or be a sluggard, you know? I mean, they, it's, it's using every... Some people are really good at tying that in, but I, I, to me, this is just another way of saying discipleship. I don't know what happened there. But this is discipleship, right? That's another word. It's kind of a loaded word, but uh, Jesus talks about discipleship. That's kind of the main command as he leaves. Make disciples. What does that look like? We try to work that out in our triads and in other places too, of course. But I think those are some of the things. It's holistic. touches on everything. It's intentional. Got to have some sort of a plan. But it's also organic. And usually one of those pieces can be missing. And when they are, you don't have a full picture of what it looks like to live and to walk with God. And Moses doesn't want them to miss some of that. So he says this is what it looks like moving forward. Now, final point uh, for us. And does anybody know what's going on here? Micah? So we lost some stuff there too. But the, the la last thing to, to, to kind of get us to is because I don't know about you, but for, for me, this gets a little overwhelming. Obey what God's commanded. And, and not only obey, but do it with the right motive from the heart. Um, if you're in, even if you don't have kids per se, the Bible talks a lot about spiritual parenting. You're older than somebody then you have an opportunity because you're older than somebody to disciple them, right? That's, Paul does this with Timothy. Hey, my son in the faith. So I, I, I get a little overwhelmed because I think, how do I do all this? Or I'm not doing well and I don't know what's going on. I, I'm not living it out, really. I forget all the time. I forget all the time. I mean, I have a bad memory, period. And then there's also selective forgetting where I just say, I'm not remembering what God has done because Currently, I'm in a crisis, and I'm panicking like everybody else. Instead of remembering, oh, God showed up. Yeah, he's got this. It may not turn out well, but he's still God. Am I the only person who forgets that stuff? I, I, I just live in that. I'm, I'm, I'm growing, and even Moses himself, as we saw last week, he had grown up a whole bunch, but at the end of his life, he struck the rock twice. He doesn't get to go to the promised land. He's still learning, even up to that point. So it feels kind of hopeless. Unless there's somebody who's going to step in and take care of it for us. I'll bet you know who that is. Because De Deuteronomy, like so many other things, anticipates the beauty of Christ fulfilling the law. Christ stepping in and doing all these things, even when our heart wants to, but we can't quite get there. He does. And I'll give you just a couple quick examples of that. When you're reading through Deuteronomy, um, perhaps, if, if you've been doing that, sometimes you're like, what in the world is going on here? Like Deuteronomy chapter 23, 2. 
No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any one of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. It's a lot of generations. It's a lot of years. Hundreds of years. If you're born of a forbidden marriage, whether that's because it was out of wedlock or maybe to somebody who wasn't from the Israelite nation, not only can you not go into the space where God is worshipped, but neither can any of the kids or grandkids or great-great-grandkids for ten generations. That seems kind of counterintuitive, right? To come one, come all. Come as you are. And it sort of is because we live in a, a place where Christ has come and he has fulfilled all those demands. In fact, he was the illegitimate child and that punishment was put on him so that you can have access. No matter what, listen, listen, don't trust me. Listen to what Paul says. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You belong to Christ, you have all the rights and privileges to being Abraham's seed, the, a, son, a son of God. Everything in here that you wouldn't have access to because of one sin, all taken care of in Christ. And this isn't a verse that says, you know, th these, these distinctions don't matter. The point of it is that they don't matter with reference to the benefits and privileges you have in Christ. You're Abraham's seed. That's some rich stuff if you've been reading through Genesis, that promise in the beginning. I'm gonna, you're going to have lots of children. You're going to be the father of many nations. And you're the product of that. Because none of us deserves to enter into the assembly of God if we're going to live in Deuteronomy. I mean, don't believe me? There's more. I'll only give you one, one, one more example, too. It, this is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must, must die. You must purge the, the evil from Israel. And we know that Jesus comes along and says, you know, you may not have slept with another woman, but you've committed adultery in your heart. So guess what? We're all on the hook. We all deserve to die. And then Jesus comes. Deuteronomy is like, wow, we're hopeless. Which one of us can stand? None of us. That's the point. And then Christ comes and he says, I've done this all. And, and let me just give you a picture of that too. And this is going to be in, in, I don't even know if I put this up. Yeah, John chapter 8. Some of you know this scene. This is amazing. Think of Deuteronomy as the backdrop. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law that Moses commanded, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? He goes on. Jesus doesn't answer. He bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, nobody knows what he was doing. But I, I, I personally think that he was writing some sins with names attached. Because one by one, starting with the oldest, they start walking away. <laughs> John, you know, whatever he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones at first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. That's the gospel. 
That's the good news. Then neither do I condemn you. But you see, don't you, how even what Moses is saying is true. It's not like it's just a word of no condemnation. What do you do with that? What Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. It frees you to walk in God's ways because that's what's good for you. But so many people never get there because they just experience the condemnation. And understand that. It can be very complex. But the word that Jesus brings is, I have fulfilled the law of Moses. I have done everything right. And there's no condemnation for you. You are no longer bound by this. But guess what? Now you're free to walk in my ways. And God's going to do some work on your heart. Because it's not just about the external obedience. He's been writing these things on your heart as well. And guess what? It's a process. Yeah, you're going to keep learning this and you're going to grow, but you're going to fail. But I never stop being there for you. That word of condemnation no longer is true. You are not, you, if you're a son or a daughter of God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilt. You're no longer under the law. He has fulfilled it. So Sharon, Sharon Hooks, Hicks, just in closing, is somebody who's played the piano for us before. She just opened a counseling practice with a Japanese name, Kintsukuroi. Is that right? I don't know if we have any Japanese speakers here this morning, but uh, so we'll pretend that's it. It's some, something like that, but it's the basic idea it, it, on her website too. It's the Japanese art of mending broken objects with gold. It embraces brokenness as part of an object's history it makes it more beautiful in its imperfection and stronger as well. You know, we're looking back at Deuteronomy. That's, that's, that's true as a big history, but it's probably true of you individually as well. Brokenness in your life. And, and, and Christ says, I'm going to take those broken pieces and put them together in this kind of way to make something even more beautiful and stronger as a result. But we can try to do it on our own. It's like trying to fit those pieces together and it's probably like me in a project like that. I'd chew up some gum and try to make it stick together because I'm terrible at that kind of thing and say, look, it's not very pretty and it's not going to last forever. I take that brokenness to Jesus and say, okay, you repair it. That's the story side. This is, this is a picture of one of the, one of the art, one of the pieces of, from Kitsukurai that you can do as well. See how beautiful that is? I think that's a picture of story. No story, you just see the broken pieces. Story, you believe that God's putting something together beautiful. And that's where I think we need to end with this. As we move forward, and you know, next week we'll be skipping over to Joshua. Let's remember. And let's live it out. And let's pass it on as well. Now because we're broken, this is why we have the Lord's Supper. Because we need to be reminded. Jesus even said, hey, remember, remember what happened here. He knew on the night he was betrayed that he would take this and he would give an ongoing encouragement, a living demonstration of what he did on the cross. Dying so that we could know life and walk in it. Now, because we are on that learning curve, we tend, we disobey, we forget. So this is a wonderful time to, to repent, to live on that story side. Repenting, saying, God, where do I need to confess my sins to you? Um, if you confess, there's forgiveness. And this is the assurance of that. 
He did all the work, but you do need to confess. Let God examine your heart here today. If your intent, if you're a child of God, you know that. Through faith, you said yes to Christ. And your intent is to walk in God's ways. This table's for you. Even if you failed. If you're not a child of God and you have no intention to walk in God's ways, this table's not for you. You need to let these elements pass. But don't let the opportunity pass. Let God do his work in your heart. Let him begin to soften and tenderize it just as he would for any of us as well. It was on the day that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, the night that he took bread and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink. We'll distribute the bread first and we'll hold it all together to take as one and I'll let you know when we do that and then we'll follow that with the cup as well. Jane, will you help me?